This month's bandwidth is brought to you by Psychedelic Water. Legal psychedelics suspended in green tea and then put inside of a can for you. Psychedelic Water. Who needs a Tillinghast resonator when you've got Psychedelic Water? Are you a curvy girl? Do you know a curvy girl? You love a curvy girl. Check out the show links for Curvy Girl. Plus size clothing for plus size women. Size up, ladies. Pretty good stuff. I think I've got a, I've got a sickness for the thickness, and I have to recommend Curvy Girl. All right. Also, Larry, fine, fine student instruments, beginner's instruments. If you want to modify a guitar, check out Glary. If you want to get into guitars, if you love guitars, Glary. Things from another world. It's a store that has art. It has toys. It has comics, graphic novels. It is the place if you like that kind of stuff. Dave and I have talked about it in the show before. They were ever a sponsor. Dave likes to check out their stuff. I like to check out their stuff. They're pretty cool. Toys, art, graphic design, not graphic design, graphic novels for you. Things from another world. Check out the show notes. Uh, check out the links on, on our website, PGTTCM. We've got specific stuff there to let you know what they've got going on for specials. Anyway, thank you again so much, and back to the show. You're listening to KZOM, Olean Public Radio. And Farmer Days, here once again to talk to you about the Cthulhu mythos, its books, its monsters, its unfortunate human casualties, its timeline in general, and even its tangential bits, like the dreamlands or things of a weird nature that are Lovecraftian leaning. Once more we head into those dark woods, further feeling those malevolent forces upon us. Once again we walk down the lightless stone staircase in the middle of nowhere. You're listening to KZOM. Hey everyone, it's me, D.B. Spitzer, your host for People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos Book Club. This month, or this chunk of the month at least, we are doing the terror by Arthur Mackin. Yes, yes we've, we've done, done this in the past, but this is a better copy, and when a better copy shows up, hey, I'm going to put it on and take the other one off. So if you liked the old copy of The Terror, well, you should, you should download it. Go to pgttcm.com, and then that'll send you on another link. That'll send you on another link because it's such an old episode. I don't even know if it was the same podcast uh, provider that I was using when I started. Or, uh, anyway, yeah. Hit. So, Arthur Mackin. We know Arthur Mackin. We love Arthur Mackin. Uh, famous Welsh writer. Uh, wrote The White People, Great God Pan. Uh, we have episodes of people talking about Arthur Mackin, so go into the archive, dive around for that. I believe uh, probably Ken Height or Andrew Grace talking about Arthur Mackin in the past. And yeah, no, that's probably going to be somewhere around 2017, 2018, 2019. We have a lot of that kind of stuff. So check that out. And it may not say People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. It may say Black Clock Audio Tales. So, yeah. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, this should be two chapters 
a little intermission with some commercials to help pay the bills. But yeah, and it should be about seven episodes. So hopefully you're enjoying this if you're several episodes into this. And I hope you're having a good commute. I hope you're having fun folding laundry. I hope you're having fun watching your kid at the playground while you do whatever you do. I hope you're having a good flight and that uh, you make your connections safely. I hope that your workday is going well. Or I hope that, uh, you know, you're just, your day off is going well, too. And, uh, yeah, everything's cool and chill. All right. Well, here we go with some Terra from Arthur Mackin to mess up your tranquil lives. I haven't used that voice for a while. I hope I didn't blow anyone's ears out. Okay, here we go. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll send you down to Sathagwa. Go to the shop, check out our sponsors, and on with the show. For real. Recording by Dan Gruszynski. The Terror by Arthur Machen. Chapter 3. The Doctor's Theory. It is not easy to make any picture of the horror that lay dark on the hearts of the peoples of Marion. It was no longer possible to believe or to pretend to believe that these men and women and children had met their deaths through strange accidents. The little girl and the young laborer might have slipped and fallen over the cliffs, but the woman who lay dead with the dead sheep at the bottom of the quarry, the two men who had been lured into the ooze of the marsh, the family who were found murdered on the highway before their own cottage door. In these cases, there could be no room for the supposition of accident. It seemed as if it were impossible to frame any conjecture or outline of conjecture that would account for these hideous and, as it seemed, utterly purposeless crimes. For a time, people said that there must be a madman at large, a sort of country variant of Jack the Ripper, some horrible pervert who was possessed by the passion of death who prowled darkling about that lonely land, hiding in woods and in wild places, always watching and seeking for the victims of his desire. Indeed, Dr. Lewis, who found poor Williams, his wife and children, miserably slaughtered on the highway, was convinced at first that the presence of a concealed madman in the countryside offered the only possible solution to the difficulty. I felt sure, he said to me afterwards, that the Williams had been killed by a homicidal maniac. It was the nature of the poor creature's injuries that convinced me that this was the case. Some years ago, 37 or 38 years ago as a matter of fact, I had something to do with a case which on the face of it had a strong likeness to the highway murder. At that time, I had practice at Usk, in Monmouthshire. A whole family living in a cottage by the roadside were murdered one evening. It was called, I think, the Langibi murder. The cottage was near the village of that name. The murderer was caught in Newport. He was a Spanish sailor named Garcia, and it appeared that he had killed father, mother, and the three children for the sake of the brassworks of an old Dutch clock which were found on him when he was arrested. 
Garcia had been serving a month's imprisonment at Usk Jail for some small theft, and on his release, he set out to walk to Newport, nine or ten miles away, no doubt to get another ship. He passed the cottage and saw the man working in his garden. Garcia stabbed him with his sailor's knife. The wife rushed out. He stabbed her. Then he went into the cottage and stabbed the three children, tried to set the place on fire, and made off with the clockworks. That looked like the deed of a madman, but Garcia wasn't mad. They hanged him, I may say. He was merely a man of a very low type, a degenerate who hadn't the slightest value for human life. I am not sure, but I think he came from one of the Spanish islands where the people are said to be degenerates, very likely from too much interbreeding. But my point is that Garcia stabbed to kill and did kill, with one blow in each case. There was no senseless hacking and slashing. Now those poor people on the highway had their heads smashed to pieces by what must have been a storm of blows. Any one of them would have been fatal. But the murderer must have gone on raining blows with his iron hammer on people who were already stone dead. And that sort of thing is the work of a madman, and nothing but a madman. That's how I argue the matter out to myself just after the event. I was utterly wrong, monstrously wrong. But who could have suspected the truth? Thus, Dr. Lewis, and I quote him or the substance of him, as representative of most of the educated opinion of the district at the beginnings of the terror. People seized on this theory largely because it offered at least the comfort of an explanation. And any explanation, even the poorest, is better than an intolerable and terrible mystery. Besides, Dr. Lewis's theory was plausible. It explained the lack of purpose that seemed to characterize the murders. And yet, there were difficulties even from the first. It was hardly possible that a strange madman should be able to keep hidden in a countryside where any stranger is instantly noted and noticed. Sooner or later he would be seen as he prowled along the lanes or across the wild places. Indeed, a drunken, cheerful, and altogether harmless tramp was arrested by a farmer and his man in the fact and act of sleeping off beer under a hedge, but the vagrant was able to prove complete and undoubted alibis and was soon allowed to go on his wandering way. Then another theory, or rather a variant of Dr. Lewis's theory, was started. This was to the effect that the person responsible for the outrages was indeed a madman, but a madman only at intervals. It was one of the members of the Porth Club, a certain Mr. Remnant, who was supposed to have originated this more subtle explanation. Mr. Remnant was a middle-aged man who, having nothing particular to do, read a great many books by way of conquering the hours. He talked to the club, doctors, retired colonels, parsons, lawyers, about personality quoted various psychological textbooks in support of his contention that personality was sometimes fluid and unstable, went back to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde as good evidence of this proposition, and laid stress on Dr. Jekyll's speculation that the human soul, so far from being one and indivisible, might possibly turn out to be 
a mere polity, a state in which dwelt many strange and incongruous citizens, whose characters were not merely unknown, but altogether unsurmised by that form of consciousness which so rashly assumed that it was not only the president of the republic, but also its sole citizen. The long and the short of it is, Mr. Remnant concluded, that any one of us may be the murderer, though he hasn't the faintest notion of the fact. Take Llewellyn there. Mr. Payne Llewellyn was an elderly lawyer, a rural Tulkinghorn. He was the hereditary solicitor to the Morgans of Pentwin. This does not sound anything tremendous to the Saxons of London, but the style is far more than noble to the Celts of West Wales. It is immemorial. Tilosant was of the collaterals of the first known chief of the race, and Mr. Payne Llewellyn did his best to look like the legal adviser of this ancient house. He was weighty. He was cautious. He was sound. He was secure. I have compared him to Mr. Tulkinghorn of Lincoln's Inn Fields, but Mr. Llewellyn would most certainly never have dreamed of employing his leisure in peering into the cupboards where the family skeletons were hidden. Supposing such cupboards to have existed, Mr. Payne Llewellyn would have risked large out-of-pocket expenses to furnish them with double, triple, impregnable locks. He was a new man, an advina, certainly, for he was partly of the conquest, being descended on one side from Sir Payne Turbeville, but he meant to stand by the old stock. Take Llewellyn now, said Mr. Remnant. Look here, Llewellyn, can you produce evidence to show where you were on the night those people were murdered on the highway? I thought not. Mr. Llewellyn, an elderly man, as I have said, hesitated before speaking. I thought not, Remnant went on. Now I say that it is perfectly possible that Llewellyn may be dealing death throughout Marion. Although in his present personality, he may not have the faintest suspicion that there is another Llewellyn within him. A Llewellyn who follows murder as a fine art. Mr. Payne Llewellyn did not at all relish Mr. Remnant's suggestion that he might well be a secret murderer, ravening for blood, remorseless as a wild beast. He thought the phrase about his following murder as a fine art was both nonsensical and in the worst taste. And his opinion was not changed when Remnant pointed out that it was used by De Quincey in the title of one of his most famous essays. If you had allowed me to speak, he said with some coldness of manner, I would have told you that on Tuesday last, the night on which those unfortunate people were murdered on the highway, I was staying at the Angel Hotel, Cardiff. I had business in Cardiff, and I was detained till Wednesday afternoon. Having given this satisfactory alibi, Mr. Payne Llewellyn left the club and did not go near it for the rest of the week. Remnant explained to those who stayed in the smoking room that of course he had merely used Mr. Llewellyn as a concrete example of his theory, which, he persisted, had the support of a considerable body of evidence. There are several cases of double personality on record, he declared, and I say again that it is quite possible that these murders may have been committed by one of us in his secondary personality. Why, 
I may be the murderer in my remnant B state, though remnant A knows nothing whatever about it, and is perfectly convinced that he could not kill a fowl, much less a whole family. Isn't it so, Lewis? Dr. Lewis said it was so in theory, but he thought not in fact. Most of the cases of double or multiple personalities that have been investigated, he said, have been in connection with the very dubious experiments of hypnotism or the still more dubious experiments of spiritualism. All that sort of thing, in my opinion, is like tinkering with the works of a clock. Amateur tinkering, I mean. You fumble about with the wheels and cogs and bits of mechanism that you don't really know anything about, and then you find your clock going backwards or striking 2.40 at tea time. And I believe it's just the same thing with these psychical research experiments. This secondary personality is very likely the result of the tinkering and fumbling with a very delicate apparatus that we know nothing about. Mind, I can't say that it's impossible for one of us to be the highway murderer in this B-state, as Remnant puts it, but I think it's extremely improbable. Probability is the guide of life, you know, Remnant said Dr. Lewis, smiling at that gentleman as if to say that he had also done a little reading in his day. And it follows, therefore, that improbability is also the guide of life. When you get a very high degree of probability, that is, you are justified in taking it as a certainty. And on the other hand, if a supposition is highly improbable, you are justified in treating it as an impossible one, that is, in 999 cases out of a thousand. How about the thousandth case, said Remnant, supposing these extraordinary crimes constitute the thousandth case? The doctor smiled and shrugged his shoulders, being tired of the subject. But for some little time, highly respectable members of Porth society would look suspiciously at one another, wondering whether, after all, there mightn't be something in it. However, both Mr. Remnant's somewhat crazy theory and Dr. Lewis's plausible theory became untenable when two more victims of an awful and mysterious death were offered up in sacrifice. For a man was found dead in the Lanvihangel quarry where the woman had been discovered. And on the same day, a girl of 15 was found broken on the jagged rocks under the cliffs near Porth. Now, it appeared that these two deaths must have occurred at about the same time, within an hour of one another, certainly, and the distance between the quarry and the cliffs by Black Rock is certainly 20 miles. A motor could do it, one man said. But it was pointed out that there was no high road between the two places. Indeed, it might be said that there was no road at all between them. There was a network of deep, narrow, and torturous lands that wandered into one another at all manner of queer angles for, say, 17 miles. This in the middle, as it were, between Black Rock and the quarry at Lanvehangel. But to get to the high road at the cliffs, one had to take the path that went through two miles of fields, and the quarry lay a mile away from the nearest by-road in the midst of gorse and bracken and broken land. And finally, there was no track of motor car or motor bicycle in the lanes which must have been followed to pass from one place to the other. What about an airplane, then? 
said the man of the motor car theory. Well, there was certainly an aerodrome not far from one of the two places of death, but somehow nobody believed that the Flying Corps harbored a homicidal maniac. It seemed clear, therefore, that there must be more than one person concerned in the terror of Marion, and Dr. Lewis himself abandoned his own theory. As I said to Remnant at the club, he remarked, improbability is the guide of life. I can't believe that there are a pack of madmen, or even two madmen at large in the country. I give it up. And now a fresh circumstance or set of circumstances became manifest to confound judgment and to awaken new and wild surmises. For at about this time, people realized that none of the dreadful events that were happening all about them was so much as mentioned in the press. I have already spoken of the fate of the Myros Observer. This paper was suppressed by the authorities because it had inserted a brief paragraph about some person who had been found dead under mysterious circumstances. I think that paragraph referred to the first death of Lanfehangel Quarry. Thenceforth, horror followed on horror, but no word was printed in any of the local journals. The curious went to the newspaper offices, there were two left in the county, but found nothing save her firm refusal to discuss the matter. And the Cardiff papers were drawn and found blank. And the London press was apparently ignorant of the fact that crimes that had no parallel were terrorizing a whole countryside. Everybody wondered what could have happened. What was happening? And then it was whispered that the coroner would allow no inquiry to be made as to these deaths of darkness. In consequence of instructions received from the Home Office, one coroner was understood to have said, I have to tell the jury that their business will be to hear the medical evidence and to bring in a verdict immediately in accordance with that evidence. I shall disallow all questions. One jury protested. The foreman refused to bring in any verdict at all. Very good, said the coroner. Then I beg to inform you, Mr. Foreman and gentlemen of the jury, that under the Defense of the Realm Act, I have power to supersede your functions, and to enter a verdict according to the evidence which has been laid before the court, as if it had been the verdict of you all. The foreman and jury collapsed and accepted what they could not avoid, but the rumors that got abroad of all this added to the known fact that the terror was ignored in the press no doubt by official command, increased the panic that was now arising and gave it a new direction. Clearly, people reasoned, these government restrictions and prohibitions could only refer to the war, to some great danger in connection with the war. And that being so, it followed that the outrages which must be kept so secret were the work of the enemy, that is, of concealed German agents. End of chapter three. Hey everyone, it's me, TV. Just reminding you, we have t-shirts in the shop. Just go to pgttcm.com, check out all of our cool t-shirts and stickers. Heck, we even got some shelf curtains in there. Keep clean, look cool, 
stuff. Join us on Patreon and get a free sticker. Or don't. It's up to you. This episode is brought to you by Donner. Check out the show notes to find a good deal at Donner. Like the sound of this? This is the Donner Island Delay. And the really cool Donner LP that I've shown off on, like, Instagram. Check it out. Uh, They've got some really good summer deals. And check out their snap deals as well. Use the link in the show notes to help support the show. Get yourself some cool musical instruments, maybe some patch chords. Cool. This episode is brought to you by California Tea House. California Tea House is a family-owned tea store where you can find some of the world's best loose-leaf tea and organic herbal tea blends. Like a fine wine, there is no comparison between fine loose-leaf and common broken-leaf tea bags. So, yeah, no, check them out. Check them out. They have quite a bit of pretty awesome tea collections. I'm a huge fan of their white teas. Uh, They have a tea club that you can join, but, you know, they've got green tea, black tea, white tea, oolong, that uh, robios and herbal tea. They've also got teaware. So check out California Tea House in the show notes. Thank you once again for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. You can help show your support by going to the show notes and following any of the links that'll tell you how to support the show and how to support our guests. And thank you to all of our guests who you can find in the show notes. Rate, review, subscribe. And remember, patrons get priority access to asking us questions, suggesting topics, even, I don't know, uh, submitting stuff. Actually, you don't have to be a patron to submit anything. That's how Dave got on the show, and that's how you can get on the show, too. It's the People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Back to the show. Recording by Dan Grzynski. The Terror by Arthur Machen, Chapter 4 The Spread of the Terror It is time, I think, for me to make one point clear. I began this history with certain references to an extraordinary accident to an airman whose machine fell to the ground after collision with a huge flock of pigeons, and then to an explosion in a northern munitions factory an explosion, as I noted, of a very singular kind. Then I deserted the neighborhood of London and the Northern District and dwelt on a mysterious and terrible series of events which occurred in the summer of 1915 in a Welsh county, which I have named, for convenience, Marion. Well, let it be understood at once that all this detail that I have given about the occurrences in Marion does not imply that the county in the far west was alone or especially afflicted by the terror that was over the land. They tell me that in the villages about Dartmoor, the stout Devonshire hearts sank as men's hearts used to sink in the time of plague and pestilence. There was horror, too, about the Norfolk broads, and far up by Perth no one would venture on the path that leads by Scone to the wooded heights above the Tay. And in the industrial districts, I met a man by chance one day in an odd London corner who spoke with horror of what a friend had told him. 
Ask no questions, Ned, he says to me, but I tell you, I was in Barnington the other day, and I met a pal who'd seen three hundred coffins going out of a works not far from there, and then the ship that hovered outside the mouth of the Thames with all sails set, and beat to and fro in the wind and never answered any hail, and showed no light. The forts shot at her and brought down one of the masts, but she went suddenly about with a change of wind under what sails still stood, and then veered down channel, and drove ashore at last on the sandbanks and pine woods of Arcachon, and not a man alive on her, but only rattling heaps of bones. That last voyage of the Semiramis would be something horribly worth telling, but I only heard it at a distance as a yarn, and only believed it because it squared with other things that I knew for certain. This, then, is my point. I have written of the terror as it fell on Marion, simply because I have had opportunities of getting close there to what really happened. Third or fourth or fifth hand in the other places, but round about Porth and Merthyr Tegveth, I have spoken with people who have seen the tracks of the terror with their own eyes. Well, I have said that the people of that far western county realized not only that death was abroad in their quiet lanes and on their peaceful hills, but that for some reason it was to be kept all secret. Newspapers might not print any news of it. The very juries summoned to investigate it were allowed to investigate nothing. And so they concluded that this veil of secrecy must somehow be connected with the war. And from this position, it was not a long way to a further inference that the murderers of innocent men and women and children were either Germans or agents of Germany. It would be just like the Huns, everybody agreed, to think out such a devilish scheme as this. And they always thought out their schemes beforehand. They hoped to seize Paris in a few weeks, but when they were beaten on the Marne, they had their trenches on the Asne ready to fall back on. It had all been prepared years before the war, and so, no doubt, they had devised this terrible plan against England in case they could not beat us in open fight. There were people ready, very likely all over the country, who were prepared to murder and destroy everywhere as soon as they got the word. In this way, the Germans intended to sow terror throughout England and fill our hearts with panic and dismay, hoping so to weaken their enemy at home that he would lose all heart over the war abroad. It was the Zeppelin notion in another form. They were committing these horrible and mysterious outrages, thinking that we should be frightened out of our wits. It all seemed plausible enough. Germany had by this time perpetrated so many horrors and had so excelled in devilish ingenuities that no abomination seemed too abominable to be probable or too ingeniously wicked to be beyond the tortuous malice of the Hun. But then came the questions as to who the agents of this terrible design were, as to where they lived, as to how they contrived to move unseen from field to field, from lane to lane. All sorts of fantastic attempts were made to answer these questions, but it was felt that they remained unanswered. Some suggested that the murderers landed from submarines, or flew from hiding places on the west coast of Ireland, coming and going by night. But there were seen to be flagrant impossibilities in both these suggestions. Everybody agreed that the evil work was no doubt the work of Germany, 
but nobody could begin to guess how it was done. Somebody at the club asked Remnant for his theory. My theory, said that ingenious person, is that human progress is simply a long march from one inconceivable to another. Look at that airship of ours that came over Porth yesterday. Ten years ago, that would have been an inconceivable sight. Take the steam engine. Stake printing. Take the theory of gravitation. They were all inconceivable till somebody thought of them. So it is, no doubt, with this infernal dodgery that we're talking about. The Huns have found it out, and we haven't. And there you are. We can't conceive how these poor people have been murdered because the method's inconceivable to us. The club listened with some awe to this high argument. After Remnant had gone, one member said, Wonderful man, that! Yes, said Dr. Lewis. He was asked whether he knew something, and his reply really amounted to, No, I don't. But I have never heard it better put. It was, I suppose, at about this time when the people were puzzling their heads as to the secret methods used by the Germans or their agents to accomplish their crimes that a very singular circumstance became known to a few of the Porth people. It related to the murder of the Williams family, on the highway in front of their cottage door. I do not know that I have made it plain that the old Roman road called the highway follows the course of a long, steep hill that goes steadily westward till it slants down and droops towards the sea. On either side of the road the ground falls away, here into deep shadowy woods, here to high pastures, now and again into a field of corn, but for the most part into the wild and broken land that is characteristic of our phone. The fields are long and narrow, stretching up the steep hillside. They fall into sudden dips and hollows, a well springs up in the midst of one, and a grove of ash and thorn bends over it, shading it, and beneath it the ground is thick with reeds and rushes. And then may come on either side of such a field territories, glistening with the deep growth of bracken, and rough with gorse and rugged with thickets of blackthorn, green lichen hanging strangely from the branches. Such are the lands on either side of the highway. Now on the lower slopes of it, beneath the Williams Cottage, some three or four fields down the hill, there is a military camp. The place has been used as a camp for many years, and lately the site has been extended and huts have been erected, but a considerable number of the men were under canvas here in the summer of 1915. On the night of the highway murder, this camp, as it appeared afterwards, was the scene of the extraordinary panic of the horses. A good many men in the camp were asleep in their tents soon after 9.30, when the last post was sounded. They woke up in panic. There was a thundering sound in the steep hillside above them, and down upon the tents came half a dozen horses, mad with fright, trampling the canvas, trampling the men, bruising dozens of them and killing, too. Everything was in wild confusion, men groaning and screaming in the darkness, struggling with the canvas and the twisted ropes, shouting out, some of them, raw lads enough, that the Germans had landed, others wiping the blood from their eyes. A few roused suddenly from heavy sleep, hitting out at one another. Officers coming up at the double, roaring out orders to the sergeants. A party of soldiers who were just returning to camp from the village seized with fright at what they could scarcely see or distinguish. At the wildness of the shouting and cursing and groaning that they could not understand, 
bolting out of the camp again and racing for their lives back to the village. Everything in the maddest confusion of wild disorder. Some of the men had seen the horses galloping down the hill as if terror itself was driving them. They scattered off into the darkness and somehow or another found their way back in the night of, to their pasture above the camp. They were grazing there peacefully in the morning and the only sign of the panic of the night before was the mud they had scattered all over themselves as they pelted through a patch of wet ground. The farmers said they were as quiet a lot as any in Marion. He could make nothing of it. Indeed, he said, I believe they must have seen the devil himself to be in such a fright as that, save the people. Now all this was kept as quiet as might be at the time when it happened. It became known to the men of the Porth Club in the days when they were discussing the difficult question of the German outrages, as the murders were commonly called. And this wild stampede of the farm horses was held by some to be evidence of the extraordinary and unheard of character of the dreadful agency that was at work. One of the members of the club had been told by an officer who was in the camp at the time of the panic that the horses that came charging down were in a perfect fury of fright, that he had never seen horses in such a state, and so there was endless speculation as to the nature of the sight or the sound that had driven half a dozen quiet beasts into raging madness. Then in the middle of this talk, two or three other incidences, quite as odd and incomprehensible, came to be known, born on chance trickles of gossip that came into the towns from outland farms, or were carried by cottagers tramping into Porth on market day with a fowl or two and eggs and garden stuff, scraps and fragments of talk gathered by servants from the country folk and repeated to their mistresses. And in such ways it came out that up at Plas Noed there had been a terrible business over swarming the bees. They had turned as wild as wasps, and much more savage. They had come about the people who were taking the swarms like a cloud. They settled on one man's face so that you could not see the flesh for the bees crawling all over it. And they had stung him so badly that the doctor did not know whether he would get over it. And they had chased a girl who had come out to see the swarming and settled on her and stung her to death. Then they had gone off to a break below the farm and got into a hollow tree there, and it was not safe to go near it for they would come out at you by day or by night. And much the same thing had happened, it seemed, at three or four farms and cottages where bees were kept. And there were stories, hardly so clear or so credible, of sheepdogs, mild and trusted beasts, turning as savage as wolves and injuring the farm boys in a horrible manner. In one case, it was said, with fatal results. It was certainly true that old Mrs. Owen's favorite Brahma Dorking cock had gone mad. She came into Porth one Saturday morning with her face and her neck all bound up and plastered. She had gone out to her bit of a field to feed the poultry the night before, and the bird had flown at her and attacked her most savagely, inflicting some very nasty wounds before she could beat it off. There was a steak handy, lucky for me, she said, and I did beat him and beat him till the life was out of him. But what has come to the world, whatever? Now Remnant, the man of theories, was also a man of extreme leisure. 
It was understood that he had succeeded to ample means when he was quite a young man, and after tasting the savors of the law, as it were, for half a dozen terms at the board of the Middle Temple, he had decided that it would be senseless to bother himself with passing examinations for a profession which he had not the faintest intention of practicing. So he turned a deaf ear to the call of manger ringing through the temple courts and set himself out to potter amiably through the world. He had pottered all over Europe, he had looked at Africa, and had even put his head in a door of the east on a trip which included the Greek Isles and Constantinople. Now getting into the middle fifties, he had settled at Porth for the sake, as he said, of the Gulf Stream and the fuchsia hedges and pottered over his books and his theories and the local gossip. He was no more brutal than the general public, which revels in the details of mysterious crime, but it must be said that the terror, black though it was, was a boon to him. He peered and investigated and poked about with the relish of a man whose life a new zest has been added. He listened attentively to the strange tales of bees and dogs and poultry that came into Porth with the country baskets of butter, rabbits, and green peas, and he evolved at last a most extraordinary theory. Full of this discovery, as he thought it, he went one night to see Dr. Lewis and take his view of the matter. I want to talk to you, said Remnant to the doctor, about what I have called provisionally the Z-Ray. End of chapter 4